0: Chapter 13. Smith in the City. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, please visit LibriVox.blogsum.com. Today's reading by Aaron Andrade. Smith in the City by P.G. Woodhouse. Chapter 13. Mike is moved on. This episode may be said to have concluded the first act of the commercial drama in which Mike and Smith had been cast for leading parts. And as usually happens after the end of an act, there was a lull for a while until things began to work up towards another climax. Mike, as day succeeded day, began to grow accustomed to the life of the bank and to find that it had its pleasant side after all. Whenever a number of people are working at the same thing, Even though that thing is not perhaps what they would have chosen as an object in life, if led to themselves, there is bound to exist an atmosphere of good fellowship, something akin to, though a hundred times weaker than, the public school spirit. Such a community lacks the main motive of the public school spirit, which is pride in the school and its achievements. Nobody can be proud of the achievements of a bank. When the business of arranging a new Japanese loan was given to the new Asiatic bank, its employees did not stand on stools and cheer. On the contrary, they thought of the extra work it would involve, and they cursed a good deal, though there was no denying that it was a big thing for the bank, not unlike winning the Ashburton would be to a school. There is a cold impersonality about a bank. A school is a living thing. Setting aside this important difference, there was a good deal of the public school about the new Asiatic Bank. The heads of departments were not quite so autocratic as masters, and one was treated more on a grown-up scale, as man-to-man, but nevertheless there remained a distinct flavor of a school republic. Most of the men in the bank, with the exception of certain hard-headed Scotch youths drafted in from other establishments in the city, were old public school men. Mike found two old Rykinians in the first week. Neither was well known to him. They had left in his second year in the team, but it was pleasant to have them about and to feel that they had been educated at the right place. As far as Mike's personal comfort went, the presence of these two Rykinians was very much for the good. Both of them knew all about his cricket, and they spread the news. The new Asiatic bank, like most London banks, was keen on sport and happened to possess a cricket team which could make a good game with most of the second-rank clubs. The disappearance to the east of two of the best bats of the previous season caused Mike's advent to be hailed with a good deal of enthusiasm. Mike was a county man. He had only played once for his county, it was true, but that did not matter. He had passed the barrier which separates the second-class bat from the first class, and the bank welcomed him with awe. "'County men did not come their way every day. "'Mike did not like being in the bank, "'considered in the light of a career, "'but he bore no grudge against the inmates of the bank, "'such as he had borne against the inmates of Sedley. "'He had looked on the latter as bound up with the school "'and consequently enemies. "'His fellow workers in the bank "'he regarded as companions in misfortune. "'They were all in the same boat together,' There were men from Tunbridge, Dulwich, Bedford, St. Paul's, and a dozen other schools. One or two of them he knew by repute from the pages of Wisden. Bannister, his cheerful predecessor in the postage department, was the Bannister, he recollected now, who had played for Gettington against Rickon in his second year in the Rickon team. Monroe, the big man in the fixed deposits, he remembered as leader of the Ripton Pack. Every day brought fresh discoveries of this sort, and each made Mike more reconciled to his lot. They were a pleasant set of fellows in the new Asiatic bank, and but for the dreary outlook which the future held, for Mike, unlike most of his fellow workers, was not attracted by the idea of a life in the East, he would have been very fairly content. The hostility of Mr. Bickersdyke was a slight drawback. "'Smith had developed a habit of taking Mike with him to the club of an evening, "'and this did not do anything towards wiping out of the manager's mind "'the recollection of his former passage of arms with the old Rackinian. "'The glass remaining set fair as far as Mr. Rossiter's approval was concerned. "'Mike was enabled to keep off the managerial carpet to a great extent, but twice when he posted letters without going through the preliminary formality of stamping them, Mr. Bickersdyke had opportunities of which he availed himself. But for these incidents, life was fairly enjoyable. Owing to Smith's benevolent efforts, the postage department became quite a happy family, and ex-occupants of the postage desk, Bannister especially, were amazed at the change that had come over Mr. Rossiter. He no longer darted from his lair like a pouncing panther, "'to report his subordinates to the manager "'seemed now to be a lost art with him. "'The sight of Smith and Mr. Rossiter "'proceeding high and disposedly to a mutual lunch "'became quite common and ceased to excite remark. "'By kindness,' said Smith to Mike "'after one of these expeditions, "'by tact and kindness, that is how it is done. "'I do not despair of training Comrade Rossiter "'one of these days to jump through paper hoops.' so that altogether Mike's life in the bank had become very fairly pleasant. Out of office hours he enjoyed himself hugely. London was strange to him, and with Smith as a companion, he extracted a vast deal of entertainment from it. Smith was not unacquainted with the West End, and he proved an excellent guide. At first, Mike expostulated with unfailing regularity at the other's habit of paying for everything, but Smith waved aside all objections with languid firmness. "'I need you, Comrade Jackson,' he said, when Mike lodged a protest on finding himself bound for the stalls for the second night in succession. "'We must stick together. As my confidential secretary and adviser, your place is by my side.' Who knows but that between the acts tonight I may not be seized with some luminous thought. Could I utter this to my next-door neighbor or the program girl? Stand by me, Comrade Jackson, or we are undone. So Mike stood by him. By this time Mike had grown so used to his work that he could tell to within five minutes when a rush would come and he was able to spend a good deal of his time reading a surreptitious novel behind a pile of ledgers or down in the tea-room. The new Asiatic bank supplied tea to its employees. In quality it was bad, and the bread and butter associated with it was worse, but it had the merit of giving one an excuse for being away from one's desk. There were large printed notices all over the tea-room, which was in the basement, informing gentlemen that they were only allowed ten minutes for tea, but one took just as long as one thought the head of one's department would stand, from twenty-five minutes to an hour and a quarter. This state of things was too good to last. Towards the beginning of the new year, a new man arrived, and Mike was moved on to another department. End of chapter 13